All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School here at Cornerstone Bible Church. We're back in Jude for another week. Uh, Last week, Bob took us through the introduction of Jude, and we're going to get into the first three verses. Man, didn't even get some of the coffee there, and I needed it. All right, uh, we're going to get through the first three verses of the epistle today. Um, So why don't we go ahead and open up. We'll read those first three verses, pray, and then jump right into it. Okay? Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your entire scripture. We thank you also for this book of Jude. And we ask, Lord, that as we study it throughout not just this week, but the coming weeks, that we would learn from it uh, what you would have us to, to know, that you would transform us by it, and that, Lord, we would be encouraged by it, not just in our faith and in our uh, standing before you, but also, Lord, encouraged to fight, to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And we praise you for making us saints, not based on anything that we have in, of our, in and of ourselves, but for your glory and for your name. And we ask that you would be glorified now as we study this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. So I began preparing this lesson actually several weeks before Bob did his introduction last week. So there's a little bit of overlap, I think, between what I say and what he says. And I'll probably end up mentioning Bob several times in one of the and the things that he talked about. But I'm also really grateful because he laid some really good foundation work, some really good groundwork for us to build off of today because I really do think that these first three verses of, um, of Jude are excellent and they frame the discussion that's going to come over the next few weeks really, really well. One of the other things that I like about this is uh, it's going to feel uh, certainly fresh, but also like a lot of deja vu. Because as Bob mentioned last week, 2 Peter and Jude end up having a lot of the same themes in it. In fact, to the point where there are even some of the same words and phrases used um, between them. And so, uh, as Bob mentioned, you know, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of scholars wonder which one came first, 2 Peter or Jude. He took the position of 2 Peter. I would probably take the, uh, the position of Jude. But it doesn't really matter. One of the cool things is that we actually look at these, these um, epistles and we see the similarities in them and we know that it's basically because, well, first of all, it is because it's the, the Holy Spirit um, who is actually um, inspiring these men. But also think about it. These are written by leaders of the church, taught by the same Messiah, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, all within a few decades of one another, all writing, all focused upon similar concerns doctrinally. And bound to, uh, they're bound to sound similar, right, um, occasionally. And that's, that's actually good because what we get then is lots of cross-reference, cross-talk between the texts, and we end up being able to look at things from different facets. So um, 
And then when you actually combine that with going into Jude right after 2 Peter, just as Bob said, there's so much overlap in the content to the point where it's actually the same wording sometimes. And so you're going to get a sense of deja vu as we go through this for sure. And once again, I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have things reinforced, of course, and it's a good thing too for us to see um, things from different perspectives. And that's actually why I love Jude so much because we get a very different perspective, I think, from Paul or from uh, even James, when James is a bit fiery, right? Um, and even from Peter, who's got like a, uh, um, he's got some energy about him, right? From the stories that we, we read about Peter, that's for sure. But Jude, we get something very different seemingly. He uses different language. He doesn't pull any punches. He really gives it to us just straight out. And I love him for that. Another thing that I really love about him is the fact that he loves a historical reference. And I, I'm a big history buff. I love reading history. And he's constantly bringing up historical people and historical events. He ends up referencing the, the Exodus, Satan's rebellion, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses' death, Cain, Balaam, Korah, Enoch, Adam, all these people. And it's really important for us to understand the historicity of those people and those people. Uh, those situations so that not only we can understand what Jude is saying, but also so that we can understand our own times. And he's pointing that out as he goes through. But he does it once again with lots of fire. Because through here he ends up calling false teachers, which by the way, this is about uh, calling out the false teachers and the false teaching which is seeping into the church. He ends up calling them unreasoning animals and followers of Cain and Balaam and Korah and hidden reefs. Clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea who cast up their shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And then he goes into describing who they are character-wise too. And so we get a really full picture of what these people are because he's calling them out for what they are. And in our culture of just be nice... This comes across like a big bucket of ice water dumped on your head after working outside all day in triple-digit heat. I mean, this is, this is something where we actually... Well, you know how when you have a, a plate with something on it, sometimes all you need is like a little sponge and just a, a gentle, you know, scrub? Uh, this isn't that. This is a pressure washer. The gunk is built up, and now what he's doing is he's pulling out a pressure washer and really going to town. And that's what we get from this book. And so I'm really looking forward to going through it. And we get to kick it off today with a couple of really sweet verses. Because verse 1 and verse 2 are, they're nice. They talk about our common salvation, the thing that he had intended to write about. And then we end up shifting gears. And he starts getting right into it. And what we get is a good kickoff as he tells us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all, handed down to the saints. So let's uh, reread our verses, our text today, and then, uh, and then we'll get into the looking at each one. All right, Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith 
which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he starts off identifying himself, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So we get a couple of clues there, and Bob fortunately went through and talked about which Jude this is. In fact, I think he said, I think he said there were eight different Judes or Judases or Judas in New Testament, um, mentioned in the New Testament, and we believe this to be the brother of James, or, well, the brother of James, obviously, he says that, but the brother of Jesus. And I think that's really excellent. He says, that, I mean, this is actually like what we get to see here is the humility of Jude because he identifies himself not as the brother of Jesus, rather just the brother of James, which was a big deal, right? James being the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I think if I were the half-brother of Messiah, I think I'd want people to know that. You know, there's, there's something in human nature where you just kind of want to, like, appeal to, to that sort of thing. I think we might use that relationship to curry favor and power, right? That's kind of in human nature. We might use that relationship to lend ourselves a credibility which we should not possess. Or we might use that relationship to discredit or crush our opponents, any dissenting opinion. That's kind of just inherent in the flesh, isn't it? And yet we see already that Jude is being changed and he is identifying himself not as the brother of Jesus in order to get something out of it, but rather as the bondservant of Jesus, as the bondservant. Yep, he's the brother of James. And we said, that's a big deal, right? Leader of the Jerusalem church. Everybody knew who he was. Old camel knees, you know, that leader who would get on his knees so much and pray for the saints every day that his knees got deformed from it and they called him old camel knees. What a wonderful guy. He's, he's appealing to that blood relation, but that's not what he talks about with his relation to Jesus. Instead, he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus. There's no allusion to his blood relation to Jesus, only an allusion to his blood-bought relation to Jesus. Perhaps the humility was due to his past unbelief. Bob mentioned last week that his brothers, Jesus' brothers, didn't even believe in him, right? That's in John 7, verse 5. But what's really cool is by Acts 1.14, when they're hiding out in the upper room, his brothers are there with them. What happened in between? The resurrection, right? And the resurrection changes things. We've been talking about that every Sunday morning lately, right? The resurrection changes things. Now, I'm pretty certain that Jesus, when he was growing up and as his brothers were growing up with him, Jesus probably wasn't uh, awkward to be around. Um, I, I just get that impression. He was probably easy to talk with, always kind, yet always challenging to a person's intellect. He was probably pretty enjoyable to be around, right? And probably much faster than normal at seeing how to accomplish tasks and to do them well. But he still learned new things as a human being. So we see it in Luke 2.52. We, we remember that passage, right? He grew. He was increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So there is that human side of him which showed growth and increase. And so for a younger brother who had seen him struggle to learn the trade of his earthly father, probably hitting his 
thumb with a hammer occasionally, getting splinters, trying to learn how to use different tools, it may have been hard for him to see all of a sudden his brother show that he's the master of the trade of his heavenly father. And so there may have been a lot of that doubt there which caused his disbelief. And so Jude and his brothers failed to believe until the resurrection. And maybe that thought stuck in his mind as he picked up pen and paper to write this epistle. He remembered that he himself had not believed, and it was only due to the graceful call of God that he himself was now saved. And so his relation to Christ is a master-slave relation, way more than a brother-brother relationship, right? Now, let me ask you guys, uh, I bet a whole bunch of you guys grew up going to church every Sunday, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything. Uh, you know, you grew up singing Jesus loves me every day when you were a little kid. And praise God for that, right? Because that's how we raise up another generation. You know, we want to evangelize, of course, but we also raise up generations after us and we teach them. We teach them to love Christ and to know Him, right? And so you may not have ever known a time when you didn't know Christ, Jesus, as the Son of God, right? Let me ask you, those of you who grew up like that, do you ever think of Jesus too familiarly? That's a hard word to say. Do you ever think of Jesus with too much familiarity that you forget that He is your Master, Do you ever just take the relationship which you have and have had for so long for granted? Do you ever hold tighter to the titles and positions which you have because of Christ than you do to the relation there is between you and Christ? Because He saved you? I think Bob brought it up last week, how Paul thought of himself, right? How did he describe himself? Well, he even said that he didn't want to come to Corinth with anything, with anything resembling superiority of word or wisdom, but rather just Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or he said to the Philippians, I want to know Christ in the power of His resurrection. Why? So that He could share in His sufferings and be conformed to His death? That's a guy who wasn't glorying necessarily in his apostleship, just utilizing it in order to spread the truth, right? And so we don't use our relationship with Christ for gain. We use our relationship with Christ as a way of proclaiming His glory and His excellency, right? That's what we do. By the way, you've heard of the I Am statements of, of Christ in John, right? There's seven or eight of them, depending on how you count. A good study sometimes is to look at the I Am statements of Paul the way he describes himself. He doesn't boast in it except in his own weakness and in Christ. He even says that, right? Christ was his whole identity, and I think that's what we're seeing from Jude here. Though he also claims his kinship with James, the overriding thing is his bondservant, his doulos, his slave status before this master, Jesus Christ. Sure, he was a half-brother, but... Uh, but he doesn't claim that. He claims his relation in Christ by, by the blood of Christ himself. 
But then he goes on and he, he addresses those whom he was writing to. Jude says, To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice that there's three descriptors here. He says, called, beloved, and kept. And note that each one is a state of being. It's almost verb-like, right? This is what we are and therefore how we live. We are the called, meaning there are some who are not called. We are beloved in, meaning that our state of love relates to the one who loves us. We are kept for, meaning that our state has a purpose. And second note that each one of these descriptors is something which relies upon God for its continuation. Okay, so we are the called. And how, therefore, could the calling be from us? Right? You're not calling yourself. Hey, Doug, why don't you come over here? Okay, Doug, I'm coming. No. Christ called you. God called you. God chose you. He called you. Right? It's in Him. We are beloved in. Beloved in what? Beloved in whom? Beloved in God the Father. We are kept for. Okay, kept for whom? Kept for Jesus Christ. And kept by whom? Well, the one who did the calling. You see how that's all there and it's wrapped up together. And since we're told at least a hundred times in the New Testament alone that we are called by God, that we are chosen by Him, we know unequivocally who is doing that calling and keeping. After all, no one comes to the Father or comes to Christ, unless the Father who sent him draws him. Man, I, I messed that, book, that up. No one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him. That's June 6, John 6.44. I can't talk at all. And how does that verse end? He says, and I, Jesus, will raise him up on the last day. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like calling and keeping, right? And it indicates a love that we don't deserve. Because how does... At what, in what state are we when God calls us, when God chooses us? Ooh, man, we get a pretty good picture of that in Romans 5, right? If we had time, we could read Romans 5, 6 through 11, and we would be described there as helpless, ungodly, sinners, deserving of wrath, enemies, enemies. And yet what does God do, according to both Paul in Romans 5 and now here in Jude in, uh, verse, in verses 1 and 2? He says, God calls. God justifies, God reconciles, God freely gives. Finally, there's a third thing that I want to point out about these descriptors of called, beloved, and kept. It's what leads to the further blessings which Jude calls out in verse 2, okay? So verse 2, he says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So to be called, beloved, and kept through the power of God, shown and achieved by the work of Christ, is to be in a state in which Jude, or the apostles, or even us today, can ask God, can pray to God that mercy and peace and love be multiplied upon that. Here's, here's a non-rhetorical question. I actually want to hear you say it, okay? A non-rhetorical question, and it's, there's no, no uh, like hidden agenda, no, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to trap you or anything like that. This is simple. It's a simple question. What do you get when you multiply anything by zero? Zero. 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 You know what? Louder. We could have said that loud. Yeah, you get zero. If you multiply anything by zero, you get zero. 
right? And that's how much mercy, peace, and love from verse 2 that you get without the calling, love, and uh, keeping in verse 1. Think about that for a second. We're talking about multiplication here. If you aren't called, if you aren't beloved by God the Father, if you are not kept for Jesus, in Jesus Christ, what mercy, peace, and love can you enjoy? And how could it be multiplied to you? Now, I should point out something that I didn't a moment ago when you were looking at verse 1. When Jude writes to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, some of you, maybe if you've got a KJV or an NKJV, noticed a different word there. Um, instead of beloved, you might have the word sanctified, right? I don't know if any of you guys have that. It's the difference between agape manoi uh, for beloved or agais manoi which is sanctified, so they sound semi-similar, at least to the English ear, English-speaking ear. And the reason for this is uh, the texts that were available to the KJV, NKJV um, uh, interpreters, they, uh, the, the Textus Receptus, they actually had that word, was a geismanoi in it. And then what was found afterward were some earlier manuscripts that we have, and the earlier manuscripts and the best ones, and then based on the textual criticism that we've applied to it, has brought about the majority text. And that's why like NAS and ESV and NIV and New Living and Christian Standard Bible and several others end up using beloved. Now it does kind of change the meaning of the text a little bit in that beloved, to be beloved is very different from being sanctified, right? And yet within the context of the text, they're both there anyway. And that's what I want to point out real quick, because if you can, uh, cannot get the mercy and peace and love of verse 2 multiplied to you without being called, beloved, and kept, you also can't get it if you're not called, sanctified, and kept. And it is that sanctification which helps us know even that we are beloved. So it's not entirely right to think that Jude is repeating himself by saying that when you are beloved in verse 1, love can be multiplied to you in verse 2. The word for beloved, which gets changed to sanctified in the KJV, or is, is, yeah, still means something similar, because the idea of being set apart is intrinsic in the fact that you are beloved and called. And you can't be called without also being beloved, even if you're being sanctified instead of the beloved part, right? Similarly, you can't be set apart and made holy, sanctified, without being loved and kept. I know that was a bit of a digression, and I'm only kind of sorry to make it. <laughs> because what I really want to get to is the fact that that multiplication of mercy and peace and love is something which is stated by Jude as a consequence of the sovereign will of the divine, the God who calls those whom he loves to be kept from the marriage of the church to his son, Jesus Christ, in order to heap upon mercy, mercy. In order to heap upon peace, more peace. And upon love, more love. Why? For His purposes and His glory and His joy. And we, can, we could really go off on a tangent right there. Because the choosing and the calling of God is according to His glory. It's for His glory, for His glory. 
uh, for the, the building up of his name, not because of anything that's found in us. He says that explicitly in multiple places in the Bible. You go back to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, and he tells the Israelites there, I didn't choose you because you were of a greater number than the other nations of the earth. In fact, how many people did he choose? One. Abram, that's not people, that's a person. And he made of one person a great nation. And he made promises to him to actually make of his descendants like the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. Wow. Why? Because he, it, he did it for his glory. That's the point. And if you just flip over a couple of chapters in Deuteronomy, you get to Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5, where he says, it's not for your righteousness that I chose you. In fact, a couple of verses after that, he says, in fact, very much not. <laughs> you messed up and you provoked me. It's not because of your uprightness of heart. It's, in fact, you were a stiff-necked people, a rebellious people, and I still called you. Unless you think it ended with Moses looking out over the promised land, going, yes, you're going to inherit this in spite of all this. No, 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 no. Then we get a few hundred years where they keep on doing the exact same things, provoking their, their God. And so he sends them into captivity. And what does Ezekiel say in chapter 36? He says pretty much the same thing. In fact, in verse uh, 22 of Ezekiel 36, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in, your, in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh. So he does it for his own good and his own glory. And we're the beneficiaries. How wonderful. And it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. In John 15, 16, Jesus draws a line under it. It says, you did not choose me. I chose you. Paul says it unequivocally. Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And I don't know how many of you were around before the foundation of the world, but it sounds like it was before all of us. We know that too because Paul draws an underline. He underlines it in Romans 8, right? It's a whole bunch of choosing. Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. He chooses us and calls us according to His purpose. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Because God has chosen you as the firstfruits of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Ooh, So we even get sanctification along with that choosing and calling, right? Or as James says, listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world? The poor, not the righteous, not the numerous, not the able, the poor. Did he not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And we just got done in First and Second Peter. In First Peter, what does it have? That verse we all know. You are a chosen race or family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, not to possess ourselves, right? So that you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it's clear that Jude isn't pulling this idea out of his own head, is he? No, it's clear. The God who calls is the God who loves and the God who keeps those whom he loves. He then multiplies, multiplies mercies and peace and love upon those whom he sovereignly chose to the point where we have to proclaim, along with Jeremiah, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And that the Lord is my portion, says my soul. That's all we need. We started out poor, wandering in the darkness. He chose us at that point. We were enemies of him. We were sinners. He chose us at that point. And then he gives to us marvelous light. He gives to us a name. He gives to us an identity. He, then he heaps mercies and peace and love upon that. What a good God. And that's all the portion our soul needs. So let's get into verse 3 here. Otherwise, I'll go way too long. Verse 3, let's reread that. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. I mentioned before that Bob uh, talked about how Jude's initial reason to write was about our common salvation, and we kind of get that in those first two verses. There's a whole bunch of stuff about our common salvation in there, our common salvation in Christ to the glory of God. But because of the heresy which was creeping into the church, the church is at that time, Jude all of a sudden felt the necessity, right? Felt the necessity we know what that is, right? It's the Spirit moving him. But he felt the necessity to change what he was going to initially say and instead to appeal to them to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he shoves in the clutch and ka-chunk changes gears. And, uh, you know, we could get some whiplash from that. I don't think that's actually quite how... how uh, um, abrupt this is necessarily, but uh, we could get some whiplash from that if we weren't careful. The opening sentences, which we already looked at, I already said were smooth and beautiful and encouraging, right? And they certainly went along with the plan of writing about our common salvation, but they now end up giving way to a call to fight. The English word here is contend, as you can see. Contend. This is from the Greek, epigonizomai. It has the same root word as fight. Same root word as agon, from which we get our English word agony. This is an agonizing fight. We are to agonize and fight for this, to defeat this. That's what this word entails, and in fact, the modifier in English, earnestly, right? Earnestly contend, contend earnestly. It's actually part of the same word because of that agonizing that we are to do over it. We are to agonize and fight over this 
knowing that it's not just a portion of our strength that's needed, not just um, uh, that we, we can halfway fight this or only put in just a few of our resources to this fight, but no, it is to take over everything, everything that we are. One of the questions that I hope you guys get to in the discussion, the third one, it ends up talking about there's no neutrality in this world. And anybody who tells you differently is, well, to quote the Princess Bride, is trying to sell you something. <laughs> there is no neutrality. There's no neutrality here. And what that also means then is all of our resources, all of our resources physically, all of our resources materially, all of our resources of our soul and our heart and our mind have to be put into the fight in order to contend earnestly for the faith perfectly, to do it right, to do it justice. You can't reserve a piece for yourself. So what are we to contend earnestly for? Well, he says that, for the faith, right? Which faith? That faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, I said that change of gears by Jude was abrupt, although I qualified it, right, in gear grinding. But that might have been a bit of an overstatement because actually the reason for, um, for this is that the same salvation by which God works His sovereign purpose that by which we are called, beloved, and kept, is also that salvation in which we have faith. If it's not of God's power, then man, we don't have a whole lot of faith in our own power to be able to keep it, right? <laughs> I mentioned you can't call yourself. No, you can love yourself a little too much, certainly. But you certainly can't keep yourself in the, the straight and narrow. <laughs> 1,400 years of the, of the Mosaic Law proved that, didn't it? You can't keep it. No. So instead, what we actually have to do, this faith in God and in His keeping of our salvation to His own glory is that for which we contend earnestly. It's a response. And it's here that I think the rubber meets the proverbial road for the epistle of Jude. This earnest contention for the faith, a faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, not handed down in pieces from epic to epic, no, but once for all, not created by or adjusted by the one who hands it down, no, once for all, handed down to the saints, and handed down by in its entirety by its author, Jesus Christ. That's what we hold on to and contend earnestly for, the faith that was passed down to us. And so I want to talk for a moment about what this main thing of Jude is. The main thing of Jude is to contend earnestly against those heresies which are invading the church, right? That's the main thing that we're getting to. And I want to talk about that for a moment here as we go into Jude. And this is not to take from my colleagues who will end up coming in the verses after, but rather in order to lay the groundwork so that we understand a little bit better this idea of contending earnestly. So we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at why does it demand that we contend earnestly for it? Why, why is this, this main thing? Why should we contend earnestly for it? I think we've already answered that to an extent. Why does it matter that the faith which is passed on must be contended for? Against whom are we contending? And that's what I really want to get to in a moment. 
And then what does this earnest contention look like? And I can, we don't have a ton of time. Oh boy, we really don't have a ton of time. But I would like to get into it a little bit and to review a few things that Jude tells us and reveals to us about those whom we contend against and how we contend against them. Okay, so those, those are the two things I'd like to answer. Um, I can't answer all the questions, obviously, but, um, but I, want to note, I want you to note a few things. First, first, we contend earnestly for the faith against those who turn grace to license. If you look ahead in verse 4, it says, Certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Honestly, a whole bunch of is said about this in Jude. Because, I mean, he references Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was the sin of Balaam, right? What was that sin? People following after their own lusts. This book is replete with those who want to turn God's grace into licentiousness. Who want God's grace to be a reason for them to move forward with uh, being untethered to transformation and change. And we see this in our own world too, right? How many churches do you know of that teach a gospel of licentiousness? R.C. Sproul used to say their favorite hymn was to sing, Freed from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. That kind of says it all, right? I can sin all I want and still have remission. They teach it, just raise your hand, pray this prayer, and you're good, form of non-transformational, non-gospel, right? That's what they preach. And so we contend earnestly against that. Second, we contend earnestly for the faith against those who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's also in verse 4. That's how he closes it out. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says, Saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroying those who did not believe. There were some unbelievers amongst that congregation of Israel that were brought out of the Exodus, huh? Yeah. Just like, and though we don't know who they are, in all of our churches there are actually unbelievers, tares among the wheat. We know that, right? What happened to those that were brought out of Egypt and didn't believe? What happened to those? What happened to Korah? What happened to those who grumbled against God's salvation? Do you remember some fiery serpents? You remember the ground opening up and swallowing people? What happened to those who intermixed and committed abominations with the Moabite and Midianite women in the wilderness? Till Phineas came along, right? Sticking a spear through a couple of people. Yeah, they were destroyed. Judgment came upon them. They might have been Israelites by the flesh, but they denied by their actions the God who saved them. That's what we're talking about here. And we see this in our own world and time too, don't we? In our own churches. How many churches proclaim to be for Jesus and yet erect an entire theology around ordering Him around like some cosmic lackey? How many people claim to serve Christ and yet merely use His name for whatever gain they may have by leveraging it? This goes for any worker currying favor from a devout boss to the politician currying favor with his constituents but not really believing 
or the, to the pastor who merely presents a candied, caramelized, milk chocolate message that goes down smooth in order to get the tithes in, but provides no real sustenance or nutrition. Third, we contend earnestly for the faith against those who have no fear of their spiritual plight. In verses 8 and 10, you can look ahead in there, Jude says that these men, also by dreaming, reject authority and revile angelic majesties and revile things they do not understand. These end up being murderers like Cain. When you revile things that you do not understand, when you revile angelic majesties, they end up being murderers just like Cain, not knowing the value of human life made in the image of God. That's, that's verse 11. They don't know what the value of human life is. And their master, remember Jesus described as a murderer from the beginning, right? And so what do they do? They spill innocent blood. They abort little babies. They euthanize the old or those who are just are useless in their idea and their mind. They try anybody that they can't murder. They try to mutilate and destroy in how many different ways? Why? Because they're lovers of blood, lovers of death, murderers. They also end up thinking themselves equal to Satan, able to fight him under their own power. You see that in verse 9. These end up coming to the church's feasts or to the church's worship, but do not provide any spiritual nourishment for others, seeking only to lift themselves up as full of knowledge and spiritual refinement. And we see this in our own time in our own churches, right? People who can't bring themselves to utter what they consider faith-destroying words you know, like what Michael said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, leaving it to the Lord, and instead utter immature and unknowledgeable nonsense like, uh-uh, Satan, not today, I bind you. Have you ever heard that? I hear that way too often. Oh, yeah, you've got the power to bind Satan. No, leave it to God. Michael didn't even presume that. What? Flee from him, right? Instead, now I say flee from him, but we are to stand and fight too against this world, right? And we've got uh, we've got to know and discern the right way to do that. But you don't have power over those things in the spiritual realm apart from Christ, and you don't have power over those things in the spiritual realm without the Holy Spirit. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, you also see this in people who believe they can harness the power of the Holy Spirit by simply willing it, right? Willing the Spirit to give them the gift of tongues when all that comes out of them is inane demonic babble. Or willing the Spirit to give them the power of healing and claiming that the utilization of instruments outside of their hands ends up speaking to a person's lack of faith. Claiming that God has spoken audibly to them and given them revelation outside of his holy scriptures, revelation which trumps those holy scriptures and therefore makes a mockery of them. Yeah, those people truly are clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea. 
Fourth, we contend earnestly for the faith against those who mock God, following their own ungodly lusts, in order to cause divisions, in order to bring about things of worldly and unspiritual mind. You see this in verses 18 and 19 of Jude. These people mock God by denying what His Word says is true. They openly try to create divisions in order to exploit them. They look to the wisdom of the world instead of to the wisdom of God. And we see this in our own time and culture too, don't we? Seeping into our churches too. People who want to undermine the historicity, which I brought up before, the historicity of the biblical accounts. People who want to deny a six-day creation or deny that the global flood happened. People who want to deny the value of life as described in the Bible. Even throwing up there the ideas and theories of the world which demand death prior to even the fall. It's an undermining of everything that the gospel has. People who want to create divisions by claiming oppression for every demographic split they can conjure up. Why? In order to leverage the resulting anger and chaos for power. People who want to deny that God's created order and a person's will, or actually they don't deny it, they actually want to deny God's created order and then um, have their, their own will actually trump God, right? Trump God's will. These are the things we fight. We must contend earnestly against these things. And for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And I'll end with this. Because I think a lot of times what we end up doing is we read verses like this and it's really difficult for us to find a practical way to put them into, into um, pra- well, practice, yeah, practical way to put them into practice. I repeat myself. We, find, we need to find ways to actually put this into practice. We know this, right? We know this intellectually. We know this doctrinally. We have it written down. It's right here. But how do we do it? Well, here's some ways that I think if you're in the business world, or if you're in, uh, you know, me and poor Aaron, we end up working finance for the, the, the Air Force, and we still have to deal with a whole bunch of this stuff. These are ways in which you can fight. It's both an offensive and a defensive way. It's defensive in that it keeps you pure, and it's offensive by actually, well, being offensive to those who are actually wanting to live by lies. And what we have to do is make up our minds that we are not going to live by lies. We're not going to be party to them, right? Instead, what we're going to do is we study every day the truth of God and His message. We remember who He is and therefore whose we are. And we live according to truth. So let me give you a few ways that you can live not by lies. Do not say, write, affirm, or distribute anything that distorts God's holy truth. That's a simple one, right? Do not participate in any action unless you truly believe that it is in keeping with God's truth. Do not take part in any meeting or discussion in which truth cannot be spoken plainly. One of the ways that I think that we end up really having some problems with not fighting is we end up going into meetings where, oh no, you have to toe the line. The things that we're saying are the only thing that can be said. They don't even believe them. 
but that's still what's going to be, that's still the framework for the conversation which is going to take place. And the framework itself distorts the truth, right? So don't take part in any meeting or discussion in which the truth cannot be spoken plainly. Here's one that's really evident. Don't vote for a candidate or a proposal which is dubious or unworthy or will open the door to the obfuscation of the truth. If it starts clouding, if, if, this, if a law clouds the truth, or if a candidate is purposefully trying to twist or distort the truth or make it a little bit um, so that you can't see, it's, it's opaque, you can't vote for it. That's a participation in a lie, or at least in, in um, planting a lie so that one day it'll be watered and give fruit to more lies. Walk out of any event as soon as the speaker utters a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda. You might have done this before, right? Guess what? You probably had a few eyes on you. That's striking an offensive blow, an offensive blow, while also being defensive in that it's keeping you and your mind pure, your heart and mind pure. You walk out. Whenever a speaker utters a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda, don't be party to it. And similarly, don't support any journalism or anything else, any other media that hides or distorts the underlying facts, truth. These are, these are just a few of the things that I found, and I actually do, I've, I found this list somewhere, I'll tell you if you want to come up afterward where I got it. I ended up changing it somewhat. <laughs> but what we have to do is we have to find ways to live according to the truth of God's word, according to the truth of who he is, and according to the truth of who we are in him and what he has done. Because he's called us, he loves us, and he's keeping us for a purpose. And then on top of all of that, He's pouring out mercy upon mercy and peace upon peace and love upon love. That's what we see in these verses. And that's why we contend earnestly, right? All right, so I'm hoping you guys can get into this big time in the discussion. Um, if you don't have the questions, they're on the back, and I think there are a few up here. Um, and we'll go ahead and split up, but let's go ahead and pray first. Dear Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you for the identity which we have in Christ. We thank you for your choosing, for your calling. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us, not according to anything that's inherent in us, but for your own glory and for your name. And then, Lord, for you to give mercy and peace and love to us. There's even more of your grace that we do not and could not ever earn or repay. But Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us with courage to contend earnestly every day for the truth of your word, for the 